Politico's Holly Otterbein has a new uh, has a new memo from Connor Lamb's Super PAC that I wanted to talk about because it's just everything about everything. And so this this Connor Lamb Super PAC. So Connor Lamb is kind of the blue dog running for Pennsylvania Senate in the Democratic primary against John Fetterman, who's kind of the the Bernie bro biker guy uh, that everybody is familiar with. And so the memo that Lamb's Super PAC is circulating says that. Lamb is behind Fetterman by 30 points. So this is an internal poll you know, from Lamb wow. saying our guy is behind by 30 points. The, the primary is at May 17th, so there's not a whole lot of time to turn this around. The, it then says we tested Lamb and Fetterman against general election opponents, and Fetterman is beating uh, Dr. Oz pretty easily and is losing by three points to McCormick, who's another Republican candidate. Uh, they said uh, Lamb is not doing as well against Dr. Oz, and they didn't even include Lamb's head-to-head against McCormick. Because he gets wrecked. Because yeah. he's getting yeah. wrecked. So to recap, the poll says, I'm losing by 30 points to Fetterman. I'm getting wrecked in the general. And then it says what we need to do is spend millions of dollars telling Pennsylvanians that Fetterman is a socialist who wants to defund the police. That's, that's what, so they want to attract millions of dollars from like, the richest people in the country to call him a, a defunding socialist. Uh, they should go further. What are his views on critical race theory? What, uh... We had him on, right? He, <laughs> yeah. said, uh, they're not, he right. said they're not teaching it. Right. Yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, they can play that clip of him on Rising. That'll be yeah. the end. Yeah, just spread that everywhere. Yeah. And so then in November, uh, after they've spent millions of dollars savaging the guy, and he loses, they'll be like, see, this is why you can't nominate progressives. <laughs> so, great, how, great how that works. Kim, how do you think this will go for them? Do you think, and here, but here's the thing. It, the money that would go into this super PAC doesn't actually care if Fetterman wins the general. And that's, that's what's so interesting about this situation. So if they destroy Fetterman, but Fetterman still wins the primary, and then McCormick or Dr. Oz when the general, most of those super rich people that funded the super PAC, they would see that as a fine outcome because they're not actually right. Democrats or they're not, they don't care, you know, uh, about John Fetterman or Connor Lamb. They just don't yeah, want Yeah, they just don't want the commie up. in there, right? That's yeah. what they're thinking. We just don't yeah. want the commie right. in there. Well, you know, we've seen this kind of work out, unfortunately, against progressives with like Nina Turner and Chantel Brown, mm-hmm. right? Where Chantel Brown was able to raise a lot of money. Uh, and go up against Nina Turner, the more progressive, the one that was against the big money interest, and Chantel Brown obviously still won that election. So I I certainly think that the big money is a problem. That is probably why Fetterman's doing really well, ironically. And then what they're going to, and then Connor Lamb doing the exact opposite of what what really most people in America, I think, want. I think most everybody agrees we want money out of politics. We don't like that influence. And yet here's Connor Lamb, and he's going to go get a bunch of it. And his super PAC, that's not small donor donations right. necessarily. politics it could out be. of money, I think. Yes. <laughs> okay. In fairness, right, for Robbie. Yeah. Let's not um, tar money with the association with politics. Yeah. But I'm not so we'll a Democratic see. primary voter, so... I, I do think this could work, though, if they play on to the the socialist stuff and say, you well, he's a socialist money, yeah. he's a, or and he's, a, you know, for critical race theory, you know, all of these things that they could smear him and try to attach him. But to. he's kind of like a working class guy. Right. So, right. so he, he's Harder. like, does he describe himself actually as a socialist or is it is it the I'm a democratic socialist? And by that, I don't mean the well, I wonder if he said know, that the, he's endorsed. He endorsed Bernie in 2016. Right. And Bernie endorsed him in yeah. 2018. 
Uh, and so maybe it's I assume he doesn't actually association. want the means of production no. seized by a revolutionary Probably vanguard. Probably not. I hope. Probably no. not. That's why because those are bad. Ideas. And he's not also. I am not very clear. against those ideas. Yeah. Well, you'll, this will make you angry, Robbie. They're also attacking him for quote unquote wanting to release felons. Oh, because one yeah, of the, no, one of the one of the big risks that he's taken as a politician, as lieutenant governor, uh, has been to serve on these uh, and to and to work with parole boards to try to you know release people who are ready for rehabilitation. Yeah. And it's an example of why so few politicians are willing to take that risk because when you're running for higher office, then a Connor Lamb super PAC will come at you and say, yeah, you just wanted Willie Horton out on the streets so he could mm-hmm. you know, go on another rape spree. Mm-hmm. Is this... Yeah, uh, that's... Sorry, go ahead, Kim. Well, I mean, just that's another thing that they could play up, I suppose, in order to... And I'm sure with more money they will. They'll run ads smearing him as, you know, he's going to let dangerous people out on the streets. He's going to take raise your taxes, take your money, and... And uh, and he's going to teach your kids all kinds of crazy things in schools. That probably would work. The problem is it they, it probably doesn't work over two over two months, six weeks between now and May seventeenth because Fetterman has such, people know Fetterman. If if he was just out of nowhere, uh, and also he doesn't it, you know so much of our politics is about identity and typography, and he just doesn't look like a socialist, right? Right. He's like a right. six foot six bearded biker looking dude. And so people are like, I think it's, I think it's harder for that to land on him. Now, but you're right. Well, I think in the general, um, you know, they, they, if they spend enough money, they could, they could undermine him doing that. But an example of it not working was in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin when the when the when Democrats were trying to say he's a Trumper, he's going to. Well, same same thing. Know. He didn't fit the type. Right. Like he and had so the it best. Didn't he didn't have a MAGA hat. He didn't you know, talk he like he shaved it, every know, day. Trump. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> and so right. I think I think it was a similar thing. And Obama at one of the rallies even tried to like undermine that and say just because he looks like a nice guy and he wears a vest and he wears jeans doesn't mean he's not a MAGA guy. Like even Obama recognized how hard it was going to be to get that to stick on somebody yeah. that just didn't fit. Like it, he just didn't have the kind of character traits and and just didn't look like the MAGA guy. No. Wouldn't it be amazing if, because now with Glenn Youngkin winning in Virginia, a lot of people, uh, Republicans are scrambling, thinking we got to find ourselves another Glenn Youngkin, you know, for all of their races. And so wouldn't it be amazing if Fetterman wins and then everybody on the left is like, we got to find more biker, you know, some progressive yeah. bikers and run them in campaigns all across America. <laughs> Ryan would be happy with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, yes, run people that can identify with the working class or, or with yeah. whom the working class identifies. That's, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Try that. Yeah. What, yes. <laughs> nah, let's Imagine see that. Pete, that, Pete yeah, Buttigieg can... How about a, yeah, a corporate-tested Pete Buttigieg lookalike <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. instead? That sounds about right. Yeah, go, go with that instead. Well, we'll yeah. have more rising right after this. According to recent research from Ipsos, many Americans think political TV shows accurately reflect real life. Neoliberal darling, the West Wing, has the highest number of Americans who believe it is realistic at 51%. The show Veep has the lowest percentage, which is 27%. Just goes to show you that people are wrong. It also says age <laughs> plays a role in whether people feel these shows are realistic. Respondents under 35 more likely to feel that newer shows like Veep, Parks and Recreation are more realistic than those in the older age group. 
Uh, I've seen all the shows we just mentioned. Uh, West Wing was not even realistic for like, you know, the time period it's set in. And there's no period that actually fits what the, the sort of aspirational liberal silliness of the West Wing. But especially now, uh, even uh, I, I even found House of Cards to be unrealistic oh, because totally. it made the motivations of the people to um, almost. Like they had the drama of Shakespeare or something. No, it's Veep. It's absolutely Veep. The people <laughs> in government are just like craven imbeciles and incompetent <laughs> buffoons who don't care. I somebody, that. somebody once said of, I think it was Scott Brown when he tried to pull some shenanigans in a New Hampshire Senate race. He said he's, he's a house of cards. He thinks he's a house of cards character, but he's actually in Veep. Yeah. Which which nailed it nailed it perfectly. Yeah. And most people in Washington actually think they're in House of Cards. Like, that is true. That's true. Or the ones that don't think they're in West Wing. But the entire Biden White House thinks it's thinks it's in West Wing. People don't. Everybody, nobody don't, walks yeah. and talks at the same time. Nobody ever does that. The, that's the Aaron Sorkin uh, <laughs> signature move where they walk down a hallway. Somebody turns off. They turn. Then another person joins the conversation. Like nobody does that. <laughs> but yes, I mean, do we still have that uh, Kamala Harris clip uh, from, from, earlier in the, from earlier in the show? Did you see this, Kim? Let, let's, no, what is it? Kim, you're going to love this. You play, play, what, play what we've got or play the whole thing. Either, either way. Play the it's whole the, thing. It's the most Veep thing ever. Okay. Right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And also, she said it a couple times. Passage of time, eight more. She said it a couple times before that. That's being generous to her. So tell me that's not Veep. So add several more (laughs) passages of time, which were in the in the fuller clip, and it's it's Veep. You just need the Veep music, and you're done. You've got it. Do you know? I think what it is for Americans and is this it's sort of this idealizing or even, um, you know, making people just like doctors, for example. I think as a kid growing up, I just thought doctors knew everything. They were gods. Right. They they could never be wrong. And then I became an adult and I started dating doctors, you know, back in my single days. And I'd be like, oh, these guys are idiots. And then maybe I and then it kind of drove me to like WebMD. Right. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I'll solve my own problem. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you know mm-hmm. what's got, really wrong. Kim, we got your origin story. Yeah, right. The, the, co- the COVID it, origin story. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll do my own research. I'll do uh-huh. my own research thing. Uh-huh. Okay. But that is, it, it kind of has, you know, that's what's sort of, that's what happens is that you kind of think, oh, these people, they know everything. They're so serious. Everything's very, mm-hmm. but then you find out, wow, you're just winging it. You really mm-hmm. don't know what right. you're doing. You know, you're, you're going in this blind. And that's why so, I think Veep is right. Because when you see Washington right. up close, that is what you confront. Right. You're like, oh, most people can't run their own lives, let alone mine. So why should yeah. they have the power to do so? Yes. When you when you get in or close mm-hmm. to the rooms where decisions are being made, and you're like, oh, wow, I, I thought there were adults <laughs> here. This is bad. Oh, boy. And that goes with almost every I mean, every industry, mm-hmm. every, you know, the people in power. You just have to remember, especially for us women that are watching this. We all know that men tend to be just big boys. <laughs> you guys mm-hmm. never grow up. You're big boys. <laughs> yes. And so you guys are running things, you know, making decisions. And then you go home to your wives and we're like, you guys, <laughs> grow up. Yeah. The, my motto is the elites are bad and the people are bad. Everyone's just bad. I, I, I'm not a populist, 
but I'm not a, I'm not an elite. I'm everyone. Everyone has bad political opinions and would be <laughs> would not do a good job running the government. And so we should not have a government. You're just doomsday. That's so you, what it is. You don't think libertarianism brings about the best harmonious world. You're just throwing your hands up. Yeah. Well, it would bring about the most harmonious like. world. Or the least unharmonious. I just, yeah, just, you know, don't tell other people what to do. Yeah, a, a, a nice anarchy. Not, not <laughs> you know, not, sma it's not, not the smashing the machines anarchy, but the letting the machines take over anarchy. That's fine. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> our machine overlords. I, I welcome yeah. our, uh, our new machine overlords. Yeah, well, maybe the algorithm <laughs> will be kind to this for your kind words. Yeah. No, actually, you're right. That's a, that's a good point. Not the YouTube machine. Right. That's, yeah. Those are, those now are the I overlords. Know. Now I know yeah. why you thought the new Matrix was good, Robbie. I did like it. That I, was I know. You said you wouldn't speak ever. to me ever again if oh I said I liked gosh. it. Because it was the worst movie, and you're telling oh, me you okay. liked it. But now I understand why. You're like, let the machines take over. It'll be fine. <laughs> but they, they're good machines. I mean, spoilers, right? Some of the, the machines are nice in the, in the fourth Matrix. I don't know. Now we I know why. Okay. All yeah, spoiled. Makes sense. All spoiled. Yeah. There's, too many, there's too many angry uh, machines in fiction, right? The Terminator... Uh, all that, the Battlestar Galactica, the, you know, representation the killer robots. Why are they always killer robots? Generally, more intelligence corresponds with more humane behavior. So maybe our, right. the super smart robots will actually just want to take care of us and be nice to us. That or be nice to other robots by killing us. Possible. Yeah. I mean, again, that's what always happens in the movie, but I don't know that it'll be that way. Well, you know what, Robbie? I think out. you're going to live long enough to find out <laughs> in your lifetime. <laughs> I, hope so. I, hope we, I hope we all live to see the age of the glorious uh, robot Automation. Uh, yeah. Full oh, automation. Sweet automation. Sweet, sweet automation. What are you going to do yeah. with all your time when everything's being ruled by the robots? What are you going to do, Robbie? I'm going to play video games. Yeah, video games. Yeah, yeah video okay. Games. Yep. Pretend yep. to be a robot. That's yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Now they'll still they'll still need uh, humans, of course, to deliver the news, right? I, we, we can't. <laughs> no, no. Some jobs cannot be left to uh, to to robots and automation. No, no, no. We'll, if anything, we can't have we can't have Ryan bot. No, Grimbot I, I, 2.0. I, I am one actually. <laughs> this is a flesh and blood man <laughs> who sits before sits next to me. Uh, it might be better actually if robots were the ones delivering all the news, because then they would do it without their bias or emotion oh. and causing all the culture wars, mm. right? They would just say these are the Although facts. And there that's is it. actual research that algorithms produce racist outcomes if they if they just pull from a, a racist society. Like well, Google that. It's really it's it's fascinating. Like that they probably, like you're gonna like, get the robots canceled. You're saying like right. yeah, right. so like so, so like algorithms will give black loan applicants higher right. interest rates because oh. they're like oh that's how y'all do it yeah and I, so and so they'll they figure that out. And so then they reproduce the racism th through their. Well, that's an interesting and in like it's a, it's a problem mm. with sentencing automation. Mm -hmm, that so, too, yeah. right? Racist inputs, racist outputs. It's not the It's not that the algorithm is racist. It's that the algorithm is accurately reflecting the inputs of the society. It's probably uh, probably a computer or a robot is only as good as the person who built it. Only as good as, and only as good as the society that it's reproducing. Eventually, yeah. the robots will be built by other robots. That's so. true. Right, so then the machine learning will be learning mm -hmm. from another machine. Mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> That's how we get the so matrix, hopefully, Robbie. Hopefully they check themselves. <laughs> well, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, we'll have more <laughs> rising <laughs> right after this. In a recent tweet, United States Senator Bernie Sanders renewed his calls for universal health care, saying in part, 
In the midst of the current set of horrors, war, oligarchy, pandemics, inflation, climate change, etc., we must continue the fight to establish health care as a human right, not a privilege. Political journalist Rebecca Azor and advisor for Renew Democracy Initiative and former Republican strategist Rena Shah are here to weigh in. Welcome to you both. Thank you. And so, Rebecca, it's interesting to think back to a time when Democrats, or at least a wing of the Democratic Party, were more associated with you know, call, like, calls like Medicare for all. It seems like Republicans have done a good job of kind of framing Democrats now as the kind of the party of what, what, the party of cancel culture, of culture wars, of <laughs> of defund the police, of what, whatever the abolish ice, whatever the thing is that they're getting hit with, and that kind of history of you know fighting for everybody, so Medicare for all, for instance, is seeming to get lost. It, do you do you see a chance for Democrats to reach back to that and go go back to those those roots, or do you think that that this this is just kind of a relic of a past Democratic Party and we're in a new era now? You know, that's that's a great question, honestly, because um, there was a time that I believed that uh, the Democratic Party at one point um, at least stood on a united front. There was a time that I believed that that was a thing. But, you know, in recent days, in recent times, looking at how some of the, um, you know, the Democratic leaders are voting against things like health care for all or um, voting rights for, you know, to everyone. Um, and I, you know, seeing that. There are Democratic leaders, you know, the big, the, 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 the leaders who have the most pull are the ones that are at the forefront joining in um, on the bipartisan um, look of things with Republicans to shoot down things like Medicare for all. And I think that's, I don't think that we're going to be in a time, thanks Bernie for tweeting that out, but I don't know if we're in a place where um, Democrats are really at a united front to really pull that or really care for it. I don't think it's the first thing on their agenda is to get people health care for all. If it was something, then during the pandemic, they would have fought for that. During the pandemic, we've lost so many lives and people who could have had, you know, um, you know, their health, you know, Push to the forefront. Instead, a lot of people died because they didn't have the proper uh, health care. Um, because I, I recently saw a story of somebody losing their son um, over $20. We should not be having to choose, um, you know, to pay our rent over, you know, paying our health care. Um, this should not be a matter that we should even be talking about. We shouldn't be losing people. If it was really something that was on Democrats' minds, we would have seen that more of a fight in the last two years. And that's something that I just haven't seen. You know, Rena, I think the Republicans are very good at uh, demonizing some policies uh, on the left, progressive policies, democratic policies, often correctly. They're pointing out, from my perspective at least, things that are, are real issues with some of these policies. And then they're really good at, at also pointing out some of the absurdities and the extremism in some of the, the, the progressive kind of social policy, the, the cancel culture adjacent stuff but then not really offering an affirming agenda for themselves that, well, here's what we're going to do instead. It's just, you know, own the, it's pure own the libs kind of fantasizing. Um, is that ever going to end up being a problem for the Republican Party? That they, They're not really a party of ideas so much as like an own the libs party. And, and, and that can be successful for a long while, I think. But at some point, they're going to have to actually govern maybe or maybe not. 
Well, the party of no branding continues, it seems, Robbie. This is a moment in which we see it. Medicare for all. What a great moment in which Republicans can push back with actual criticisms of these Medicare for all proposals that we've all heard about. I mean, Bernie ran, Elizabeth Warren ran. People who love Medicare for all have introduced it to the American public. But Republicans have never really got down and said, this is what you would hate about Medicare for all. This is why Medicare for all is no good for America. And that's what is frustrating for somebody like myself who has never liked Medicare for all. And let me tell you why. It would fundally, fundamentally, excuse me, restructure the American economy. We are talking about some good parts here, things such as, you know, private insurers saying we're no longer going to, uh, you know, cover that visit to this one particular doctor. I went through that recently with my obstetrician. I wanted to deliver my baby with the group that I've delivered with in the past. And they no longer accept the insurance they accepted just four years ago. That was highly frustrating. I did not want to find a new group. And I found a way to make it work. But that was, I mean, I live in a place of privilege to be able to do that, to find a way to be able to still afford the cost of going to the same group, though my insurance doesn't cover it anymore. It was uh, many nights, uh, nights of fights with my, uh, my partner about how to afford it. But I was so bent on that. These are not the fights that average Americans should be having. So I, I want our audience to know, I don't oppose Medicare for all because I oppose every bit of it. There is There are some serious questions I think Republicans have missed the train on. How much would it cost? How to even have the policy discussion and get us to a place of figuring out the cost? And then on top of all of it, we have some serious questions as well about what the pandemic did to accessibility and portability of healthcare, particularly for folks in rural America and in urban pockets that just frankly don't even go for preventive care. So we need to find a way to have a responsible discussion, but it feels like it's lost on both sides. Again, kudos to Senator Sanders for continuing to carry the water. I mean, steady on the drumbeat, he remains. But I, I just don't see this going anywhere fast. And I, I, I don't know that there's a real appetite in the electorate to have um, our elected leaders, frankly, bring it to them the way it's been brought to us in the past couple of years. There's just and no appetite, it seems. Re Rebecca, do you think that Democrats lack credibility on this, on this, not just the health care question, but more broadly, based on, you know, this, this being their second time in a decade of controlling the White House and, and both chambers of Congress? And, you know, pushing through this major American rescue plan, including child tax credit, and, you know, they were going to make it permanent, and they, and they floated all of these things that pulled through the roof that they are going to do for the American people. And then it turns out, well, actually, they're not going to do that. Uh, Joe Manchin doesn't like it. Kirsten Sinema won't say what she thinks of it. And so, but trust us, next time we're going to do it. So how, how difficult is it going to be for them to make that, you know, really trust us, really next time we're going to really make it happen? Well, it honestly, you know, for lack of a better word, it sucks for them, right? Because this is what we are seeing. We're at a time where I've, I've said before on the show that a lot of us are monitoring, we're watching, we're now uh, a bit more educated. Even the people who usually don't know who the leaders are, they're getting educated on who the leaders are, on why they should vote, on why these people should be seated. And if they're looking at these reasons that these Democratic leaders are people who are supposed to be supporting them um, and making sure that they're taken care of are not listening to their actual needs, they should worry that they won't be seated or they won't be supported by their constituents in the following years. Um, and I think that they are dropping the ball. What we all, what we 
Here, the conversation surrounding, especially when it comes for Medicare for all universal health care, is basically that, you know, we shouldn't be having to choose. People are dying over things like $10 or, or whatever. And, and you know, um, and having the privilege to say, I you know, I didn't have I, I didn't want to switch over my doctor is one thing, but not being able to have any Medicare for all or any in any health care at all at any point, the option to go to the doctor. This is what we're seeing from a lot of people in urban areas or, or you know, and, and those kind of conversations. These are the conversations that we're having. Also, it's looking like these Democratic leaders are siding with people who, you know, these corporate uh, uh, health care leaders who are um, uh, capitalizing so many times on people who can and cannot get health care, who can uh, afford it and who cannot afford it. So this is these are the things that people are struggling with right now. And these Democratic leaders are literally turning a blind eye or giving people giving their constituents the cold shoulder. And this is what they'll remember. This is what people will remember as people are looking to be reseated or to be reelected. Um, and this is going to be something that a lot of people think of especially for those like Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin. It's like you can't be quiet on these things. You got to pick a side um, and you got to do exactly the things that you promised when people sat you down. It can't just be something that you run off of. And then when the time comes, it's like, yeah, we don't care about that anymore. This is still something that people this is still an issue. It's still here. It's still something that needs to be talked about and rectified in some way, shape or form. And this is not what we're seeing from our leaders. Well, Rebecca and Rena, thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Federal Election Commission records are showing former President Trump with more money in his war chest than both the DNC and RNC combined. Trump's cash on hand at the end of February was a whopping $110.4 million. The DNC showed $52.9 million, while the RNC showed just $45.5 million. Joining us now to weigh in is Policy Director at the Conservative Partnership Institute, Rachel Bovard. Rachel, welcome. Good morning. So what should we make of this? Uh, we'll, we'll certainly be, stru- be stuck with Trump uh, regardless of what we want because he's just the best financed player in the race. So I don't actually even think he is the best financed player in the race. I think he has a lot of money. But if you look at sort of the unintended consequences of Citizens United, it was this. It made the party committees completely irrelevant Mm -hmm. and, you know, bumped up the super PACs of major politicians. So, yes, you have Trump with 110 million. I would point you back to the 2020 cycle where Mitch McConnell's leadership pack, I think, had something like 500 million dollars in it just at the end of 2021, they had 90 million dollars in it. So they may rival or exceed what Trump has in his pocket. And again, this just goes back to how our money power dynamics work in politics. Now, it's not about the party committees. It's about who's donating to your race and then what you owe them for that. If you want to ask, you know, why Mitch McConnell's remained leader for so long among Senate Republicans, the Senate leadership pack has a lot to do with it. And do we have to start factoring this into the question of whether or not Trump is going to pull the trigger and actually run? Because if he doesn't run, then he has to just what? Either sit on this money or share it with other people. And those are two things that Trump absolutely would not want to do. The only way to spend <laughs> the money at Trump Tower, you know, at Mar-a-Lago, on a nice plane to fly around the country would be to run. And so right. do, you, do you think it, he has so much money now that that amount, that access to that money becomes a factor in his, his, his calculus? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a leading indicator of some, some kind of decision, whether or not it's been made. 
I, you know, I don't know, but, you know, Trump likes to sort of, you know, in addition to run, you know, considering running himself, he likes to at least try to play this role of kingmaker, you know, although I think in it, where normal candidates would use money to sort of make that dispensation, I think Trump, Trump's ego is very important here. And he likes, you know, to, to choose his favorite candidates, I think sometimes based on other criteria. Um, but I think you're right. You know, this, this is an indication that I think he may be uh, preparing to launch a bid or, you know, or at least line up allies around him. And, you know, unfortunately, in, in the state of money politics, you know, money talks. And, and that is exactly what these PACs are, are being used for in, in certain scenarios. But I also think it goes back to kind of what Robbie was saying in the beginning, which is, you know, the fact that Trump is able to sweep up all these donations speaks, you know, as I've said many times before, that Trump is still one of the most popular, if not the most popular Republican in the party. And there's a lot of people that hate that. There's a lot of people that don't like that. But that is the reality. And I think as a party, we have to either, you know, sort of figure out how we're going to deal with it. Uh, uh, or move on from it. And I think uh, it's the latter right now. Yeah, it, it seems to me there's only two factions in the Republican Party that really matter. The the like pro, the pro-Trump and want Trump, more Trump and Trump forever faction, and the faction that also likes Trump quite a bit, but doesn't need him to be the nominee and would like to see someone else, but they're not anti-Trump by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, the, so, so these are not two factions that necessarily don't get along, but they're, they're going to have to, I mean, like they're going to shape who's going to be the nominee. How do you see that playing out? You know, it's interesting, even from a candidacy perspective, you know, you have a lot of potential candidates that I think would be running in 2024, but will not put their toe in the water if there's even an open question uh, that Trump may run because he is that powerful. Uh, right now. And, and and I'm not even talking about the money. It's just that, you know, his base of support is so wide in the party that he can sort of turn that against people. And nobody really wants to take him on in that regard. So I almost think that this issue resolves itself by whatever Trump decides. I don't think if Trump gets in the race, there's a lot of room for debate over someone mm-hmm. running against him, you know, within the party. Do I think people will try? You know, potentially, you know, I, I think you'll see, I, you know, it's an open question what Mike Pence would do in that situation. Um, but I, you know, I think some, some people have taken themselves off the table, you know, potential candidates. I think Nikki Haley has said she won't run in 2024. I don't know what, if Ron DeSantis has said he will or won't, but I, I think he's hedging to not, you know, in that direction if Trump runs. Um, so Trump will make this decision for the party, uh, I think is where we stand right now. And Trump may also be seeing his pockets get even bigger as porn star Dan, uh, Stormy Daniels was court ordered to pay Trump nearly $300,000 in attorney's fees after her failed defamation lawsuit. The amount uh, is the same amount Daniels was conned out of by her uh, former lawyer and resistance hero, uh, Michael Avenatti. What did you what did you make of that ruling? <laughs> I mean, there are so many sideshows <laughs> have gone on uh, in the last four years. It's like I can't keep track of them. Um, but, you know, this is kind of like it, it, we lie. In, there were parts of the mainstream press that lionized uh, Michael Avenatti and Stormy Daniels. I think they made the talk show circuit. So this is a little embarrassing for them. Uh, now, there's a little bit of egg on their face. Um, but you know what? I wish her well. <laughs> I don't know what else to say to it. <laughs> <laughs> and he did use what? He had Michael Cohen use what? Was it Trump organization cash or was it campaign cash to pay her off? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> what you can't do. Yeah, it's a, that's a no-no. Apparently, well, maybe you can do it if you're it's, Trump. It's hard to know. <laughs> no. But, I mean, th- this shows that some, part of the reason why I'm, I'm not you know, massively in favor of like, campaign finance reform type stuff, and I'm curious for your take on this, Rachel, you know, there's a lot of shuffling money from one group of people to another. You make the rules a little 
harsher, but the, the process kind of works it out, and, and maybe even the more entrenched political insiders figure out how to better manipulate it. It's not like you actually ever succeed at, at getting money out of politics or whatever the kind of you know, reformers aspire to. Yeah, I think overall that's true. You know, there are people are always going to you know find a, a way to think benefit the entrenched sort of incumbents in the money race. But I do think that there has been some downstream effects of of Citizens United that we just haven't, you know, no one's looked at the landscape and and really assessed how it's changed. I mean, some people have, but you know, I think what we're seeing now is it's created these little fiefdoms, these empires within empires, um, you know, where single politicians can become so powerful. Um, just from a financial standpoint, that you can't ever resist them in any possible way. And I, and I do think it's worth examining, you know, whether or not that should be changed. And, I, and I'm speaking specifically, you know, I can't really speak to how Democrats, you know, w- would view this on their on their own turf. But from where I sit, you know, I don't love the fact that we have now entrenched establishment uh, Republicans to the extent that, you know, their tentacles are everywhere. You know, there, there's a lot of I would love to see actually robust competition to Mitch McConnell in, in a Republican leader race. You will never see that because he ceded so much cash to the incoming senators that they feel beholden to him. And just from a purely representative government standpoint, I have a lot of problems with that. <laughs> um, do I think money will ever leave politics? No, I don't. But, you know, I, I do wonder if there's a discussion to be had about pushing a few more parameters in place where none exist now. It's a huge problem on the Democratic side, but the ability of people like Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, even Elizabeth Warren in 2012 raised a ton of small dollars. Like that access to kind of activist cash, small dollars, uh, it creates a balancing with with the big money center and it, and it has shifted the dynamics a little bit. On the Republican side, there, there's a ton of small dollar money. A lot of it's going to Trump. It, are people like are, are other senators and House members just not able to tap into it in the same way that they are on the Democratic side? Although, obviously, I'm sure Marjorie Taylor Greene is, you know, her campaign coffers are just stocked with, you know, $5 contributions every time she goes out and owns Ilhan Ilmar or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point about activist money. And I do think actually Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of the top uh, raising Republicans uh, in, in the last cycle. Uh, so that, I think, you know, that that's a, a point well taken. I think it's on the right, there's been a little bit of resistance to building the infrastructure necessary, I think, to take on some of the bigger players, um, you know, than maybe the left has shown. Although, you know, my current boss, Senator Jim DeMint, founded Senate Conservatives Fund as an alternative uh, to the McConnell PAC and took so much uh, heat for, for doing it. So, you know, when you do go out and, and try to fund the alternatives, you can do it. And I think that's a, a point well taken. Um, but it, it, you know, you're you're battling against the establishment yeah. forces, you know, not just in Washington, but you know, sort of the the you're trying to also do business in a city where these people control not just the coffers, but you know, the media spin and every position of power as well. So it's an uphill battle, but yeah. hopefully it can be done. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thanks, guys. More rising right after this. First-time home buyers are being boxed out of the housing market due to sky-high prices and rising mortgage rates. Mortgage rates just went above 4% for the first time in three years, and the Feds are indicating more increases ahead. A senior economist from Wells Fargo told Reuters that home buyers have, quote, likely missed their opportunity to lock in low mortgage rates. Great. 
Well, refinancing has been at the forefront of cutting down these costs. It's been recently revealed that Wells Fargo has rejected more than half of black mortgage applicants with the highest income black applicants accepted at a similar rate to the lowest income white clients looking to refinance. Only 47% of black homeowners who completed a refinance application with the bank were approved, while 72% of white homeowners, 53% of Hispanics, comparatively, they were approved. Senate Democrats are now demanding answers from Wells Fargo, whose racial tactics would lend white homeowners greater opportunity to save on refinancing their homes as interest rates continue to climb. Rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Shauna Thomas is executive director of Ultraviolet, and Denise Long is a business consultant and contributor at Newsweek. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Good morning. So, Denise, uh, you know, what do you make of this? Um, you know, I, I never want to you know, knee-jerk accuse anyone or any organization of racism uh, without, you know, good cause to do so. But this looks like a kind of troubling uh, discrepancy in, in the rates. So what do you make of it? Yeah, so I agree that we need to be discreet in uh, how we label people. But what we do know is Wells Fargo started in 1852. And over these years where we've been taking a look at discrimination on the basis of race and ethnicity, it does have a significant history of finding itself uh, on the wrong side of how it does business with Black uh, Americans in particular and also Hispanic folk. We know that the DOJ in uh, since what accused it of it, between 2004 and 2009 of um, impartially uh, providing services to black and Hispanic borrowers to the tune of 30 thousand borrowers and those are the, the ones who reported and the ones who the DOJ was able to find so what we're finding here and, and they've settled out of court or uh, because of allegations for in the tunes of billions of dollars uh, so there's a significant history here where there's smoke there's likely fire and the chances are that the fire at Wells Fargo has never fully gone out yeah and and uh, Shauna we were talking recently on the show about how even some algorithms that banks have produced wind up reproducing these racist outcomes because they, they take the inputs of their current system and the output is, well, we're going to charge you know, uh, black applicants more for interest rates because that's, that's, that's what our algorithm understands that you do here in the United States. Now, Wells, Wells Fargo has been particularly bad you know, when it comes to this over the years, over the, over the decades, and like she says, over more than a century. Uh, you know, what, what has been the Democratic res response to this and, and how, how significant is something like the, uh, an organization like the CFPB when it comes to this? I mean, that is the good news in some of this is that like this research, th this data has created an opportunity for people like Rohit Chopra at the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to say, we're not going to accept redlining and we're going to pursue uh, regulatory solutions. Um, the, you know, I think just going back a second though on, on, you know, where, where this is starting, I think the structural racism and the, you know, the racist impact, right, doesn't have to be driven by an explicit white supremacist. And I think that's one of the arguments that the U.S. government is making. It really, it, 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 it is not, it is not about who and whether they are racist or not. It is a, it is having a racist impact. And there are biases that are being built into their algorithms, into their decision-making. Um, and it is apparently being driven by, those decisions are being driven by a group of people who are willfully blind to their own biases. 
you know, when you have a population of people who have not had the opportunity to build generational wealth, that that population is not going to meet high credit, you know, high credit score standards. So we should create new ways of evaluating applicants. And they're starting to do that and or looking at ways of doing that, but they're having to be pushed way too hard. And they think the, the U.S. government is going to have to step in even more to ensure that it happens. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, they've missed a huge window of opportunity for the last few years with low interest rates to to build greater wealth. And, and they can't go back and fix that at this point, at least not with the current tools available to them. Well, and Denise, you know, one of the, the issues that I often bring up on this show is, is that the housing supply is so artificially contracted by actually by government policy that it's, it's impossible to build in a lot of places or you face op- huge obstacles. Developers face obstacles from government at the local level. Um, uh, and and from, from, from your fellow citizens who, who will fight tooth and nail to thwart uh, development. And, and thus there's this constraint on the housing supply that drives up prices that ends up, right, robbing my generation, the next generation, uh, from the ability to, to, uh, to become homeowners uh, because, because it's a supply issue. So, so why you know, should this issue be talked about more as a, I, I guess, as a genera- generational issue and, and you know, also as a, as, a, as a racial issue because it blocks uh, you know, people who, because of historic racism, historic disadvantage, uh, are, have been in a lower income bracket and then are deprived of, of this opportunity even more so? Yeah, so I think it's both and, Robbie. So there are several things that I think are misconceptions here. Many times what has happened with Wells Fargo, as well as others who were involved in um, the financial crisis around 2008 that centered around subprime mortgages, is that what you found is that Black borrowers with qualifying credit as well as income were discriminated on not based on their risk they were discriminated on because of their race Uh, so they did have what they needed to qualify for a better loan but they didn't get it so they paid higher fees as well as higher interest rates the other piece about stock as you call it housing stock is there are plenty of inner ring suburbs locations where black people reside who they would be happy to purchase homes right to flip those homes to even build out and take care of uh, and and uh, refurbish the homes that they live in. But when you go in to get a loan, you might not even qualify for that. So there's stock here, but are we from a black borrower perspective, making it so that they can't get what they need to even take care of the homes that exist currently in the market? Right. Yeah. And I want to underline what Denise said there is that, and as this Wells Fargo data shows, even when you control for income, Black borrowers get higher interest rates, so in, you know, yep. in, or and get accepted at the same rate. So even, so you know, so even people who have the same amount of income, and some of that, I, if you try to disentangle it, Sean, I, I bet has something to do with the system's assumptions about wealth, the net worth of of the black of black population in the United States was just annihilated in the great in the financial crisis. And, is, and at some points after 2008, it was practically below zero. And so I think that this, the kind of financial system understands that even if you have the same income, you probably don't have the same generational wealth to fall back on it. Whereas a white borrower, they have, they have the income, but if they lose their job or they, they run into some problem, they've got generational wealth that they can tap into. And will always, to the, their dying breath, believe that they made it on their own, even though they got that, like, 
nice little $50,000 injection from their uncle to help with a down payment or to help them through a difficult time because they worked hard all the, you know, they worked hard their whole lives. And so they don't, they don't really credit that. And so do you think that's some of what's going on, that, there, that this massive wealth gap is, is appearing in the numbers here? There has been a massive wealth gap for a long time. It widened hugely over the last um, few years, and it's clearly playing a role. I think, you know, um, housing activists have said there's, you know, there are some things like, um, you know, stricter, you know, uh, overlays many lenders put in place, you know, after the financial crisis sort of raised the average um, credit score needed to refinance to as high as 775. So not only were they not sort of correcting for the existing wealth gap, they were actually making it even harder to meet the criteria. Um, but there's also things like, you know, the and we've talked about the appraisal bias and redlining, but there's also the impact of the algorithms, which continue to be sort of unaddressed. And then there's, there's the failure of policymakers. And this is where the Democratic Party, you know, and the administration has a role to play to really mandate streamlined refinancing programs. So there are, you know, there I, I think there are solutions here. There has to be a will both on the part of the corporations, Wells Fargo and others, and the federal government to say, there are structural factors here that are leading to unacceptable outcomes. And we are going to do things differently such that we are not continuing to rob an entire generation and, and continue to rob entire new generations of people who have already been robbed of the ability to build wealth over time. And that's that's really a matter of just making a decision that you're going to you're going to accept the reality about the impact, understand that it's a function of structural racism and do something to fix it. Is Wells Fargo too big to fail? And I would say that it's not, and perhaps it needs to at this point. Mm. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Sounds good to Ryan. <laughs> well, thank you both uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll have more Rising right after this. After voting to unionize in 2018, Howard University professors have spent the past four years trying to negotiate their first contract. Just hours before lecturers and nearly 200 adjunct faculty members were set to strike earlier this week, the union secured a historic agreement with the university and called it off. Editor-in-chief of The Real News and host of the Working People's Podcast joins us to discuss. Welcome to you, Max. Thanks for having me, guys. So what's the story here? Tell us more about what's going on. Yeah, well, I really, you know, as always, appreciate you guys um, doing a segment on this because I think, um, you know, it has gotten a, a fair amount of attention in the past few days. But um, for people there on the ground at Howard, right, this, as you mentioned, has been a four year slog to get to this first tentative agreement um, that, you know, was reached at the 11th hour, just hours before um, adjunct professors and lecturers at Howard University were set to strike. They were set to strike at 9 a.m. on uh, Wednesday, March 23rd. And I actually interviewed um, two folks from the bargaining unit, Dr. Aisha Bonner-Kazad and Dr. Sean Piers uh, at Howard University, one an adjunct, one a lecture. I interviewed them an hour before their final bargaining session, 
which began at 6 p.m. on Tuesday. And then I, I saw first thing in the morning that at 3.30 a.m., um, that bargaining team managed to finally reach a tentative agreement with the university and called off the strike. So that is great. And people kind of reported on that. But I think it's really necessary to sort of take the long view here because what should be shocking uh, to folks is first the reasons that, you know, these uh, 150 full-time lectures and around 200 adjunct professors at Howard University, one of the most storied higher ed institutions in the country, built after the Civil War, largely considered to be the most prestigious uh, HBCU in the country, a, a school that has just a famous alumni list a mile long, right? And people there who teach there, who go there, they really care about the school and its mission, and the community there is something special. And yet, uh, a lot of the folks who make that school what it is, who contribute to fulfilling that mission with their teaching and their advising and, you know, the people who uh, run the administrative staff, the nurses, so on and so forth, they have been struggling for to get the university to pay them what they deserve, to give them the job security that they deserve. And, you know, this has been, you know, like what has been driving this long strike. Um, when these lecturers and adjuncts voted to unionize in 2018, you know, the average time it takes for a new union to reach a first contract with its employer is around a year and a half, right? You know, it varies depending on sector, but that's usually like the number that you hear. So for this to go on for almost four years, right, should really, you know, tell you something about how serious the university administration was taking uh, the demands of these workers who make the university what it is. But this is not, you know, limited to Howard University. There are members of the News Guild in New York who have been struggling for the same amount of time to get their sorts of contracts. It is a, a union busting tactic that employers can use because if you go long enough and you can claim that you're bargaining in good faith, um, but you're actually not, and you go long enough without reaching out a contract, you can declare an impasse and the union will be forced to accept uh, the employer's first offer uh, of a contract before the negotiations like you know, reach that right. impasse. And the, the overarching issue here, uh, obviously, is that the, the pay is so kind of crushingly small that you know, if you factor in all the time spent grading and preparing can oftentimes for adjuncts be well below minimum wage even. Uh, but specifically, what were the issues that the, that the union raised and that the union was negotiating over at the last minute? And what, what kind of concessions could you call wins at this you know, 3.30 a.m. Uh, agreement if it gets ratified? Right. So, I mean, um, as you mentioned, the uh, membership of SEIU Local 500, um, which represents these um, adjuncts and lectures, and it also represents the, the, the nurses um, whom I mentioned. Um, so the, the folks who have reached this tentative agreement will now be reviewing and voting on whether or not to ratify that contract in the coming weeks. So we're kind of in a wait and see mode, right? Uh, in situations like these, you know, it really is important for the membership to kind of have a moment to look at this themselves, discuss amongst themselves without a bunch of like outside forces telling them whether or not this is a good deal. So unions typically don't reveal a whole lot of details about the TA until the membership has a chance to vote on it. But, you know, as you mentioned, Ryan, the really big sticking points this entire time 
Um, you know, there are a number of them, but there have been two that I, um, the, the folks that I've talked to have really emphasized. And that includes the folks I talked to for Working People. And yesterday, I was actually in D.C. for The Real News, and I spoke with Dr. Corey Lamont in the English department, and he mentioned this as well. One, like you said, is the pay. Um, you know, if folks um, have been living under a rock, you know, which is understandable, a lot of maybe you haven't been on a college campus in a while, but there's a real big problem, a systemic problem that has been decades in the making. Four decades ago, over 75% of the teaching work done at universities and colleges was done by tenure track faculty who had the promise of higher pay, uh, better benefits, tenure as a protection of their academic freedom, retirement, so on and so forth. In the past 40 years, that ratio has flipped. Now, over 75% of the teaching work at colleges and universities is done by what are called contingent faculty, um, which includes adjuncts, lecturers, and graduate students, people who are underpaid, people like adjuncts who basically don't know. They, they have to reapply for their jobs every quarter, every semester even. And so they don't know if they're going to be able to stay there and build roots there, even though they're contributing so much to these universities. Lecturers have a slightly better deal because they reapply every year to renew their contract. But again, one of the other sticking points um, for the union is that uh, for folks in that position, there is this sort of arbitrary seven-year rule at Howard University where if you don't move up in your level of professorship after seven years, you're basically fired, right? And and um, so how can – what faculty kept saying is how can we build a robust community that students can identify with and, and carry on that legacy of Howard if we're just cycling bodies in and out of this institution and people can't yeah. build a life here and commit themselves to the institution? So pay – um, to live in D.C., an incredibly expensive market to live in. There, there are teachers, uh, professors at Howard who live in Virginia and Philadelphia because they can't afford D.C. So really making sure that that folks, lecturers and adjuncts there have the pay that they need to actually live you know, a, a mod moderately comfortable life in the city and, and devote themselves to their work was a huge thing. The other one was um, job security and kind of getting rid of this arbitrary uh, seven-year rule rules. So we'll see what the tentative agreement, um, how much uh, wiggle room was made on those demands. I think as Corey Lamont um, told me yesterday for The Real News, he, he made a really important point. Even if we don't get everything that we want, the very fact that it took four years and a strike threat just to get the university to take us seriously, and they also filed an un unfair labor practices charge against the university for bargaining in bad faith. So it took all that concerted action for the university to finally take these folks seriously. And so the fact that after four years, they now have at least a tentative agreement and hopefully a first contract, that gives them a base to build on in the next bargaining unit. And they see themselves as part of yeah. a larger movement, a bottom-up movement at the university that includes the student protests uh, against the housing conditions that we saw in 2021. And students were really uh, an energizing force for the lecturers and adjuncts over this time. So it's a beautiful thing that I think means a lot for the Howard campus community. I saw uh, just a few days ago, there's a news story about uh, UCLA offered, uh, put out an ad for an adjunct position that was going to be unpaid, totally unpaid. Right. Get the exposure, you get to be a teacher. Yeah, what a That's... privilege to be unpaid. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Max, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks guys, appreciate it. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this.
Last week, a Kansas judge tentatively approved a $264 million settlement over antitrust allegations related to the marketing and sale of epinephrine. A final hearing is set for July. And according to reporting by The Intercept, the deal puts Heather Bresh Milan, former CEO and Joe Manchin's daughter, on track to dodge legal repercussions. At the same time, Senator Joe Manchin secured $2.1 million for biomedical and behavioral research centers at West Virginia University. The school is currently in talks to inherit a former Milan plant in Morgantown, which was shuttered in November of 2020. Joining us now is Daniel Bogoslaw, investigative reporter for The Intercept. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. Hey, so can you uh, lay out for us the, relation, the, the interesting and long-term relationship between Joe Manchin, his daughter Heather Bresch, the company Milan, and, and West Virginia University? Sure. So uh, you know, starting with Milan, it, this was the uh, largest uh, manufacturing plant of generic pharmaceuticals in the country uh, before it shut down. It was a powerhouse of production in the southern tip of the Rust Belt, one of the last remaining sites of industrial manu manufacturing there. Um, it, it was a community anchor uh, It employed nearly 1,500 uh, local workers um, and, and was long a sort of staple of the community. People had very fond uh, relations with the owner, Mike Puskar. Um, and again, it was really just sort of this um, uh, staple. Um, uh, Joe Manchin's uh, daughter, Heather Bresch, uh, got involved slowly working her way up, uh, eventually becoming CEO. Um, around the time there was a real C-suite shakeup. Um, in 2009, uh, the, the founder, Puskar, stepped down. Uh, a number of new CEOs came in. And around that time, the culture started to change. The, the uh, you know, Christmas turkeys disappeared. Um, you know, Puskar walking the factory floor disappeared, um, and the, the 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 climates quickly kind of began to disintegrate. Um, now, crucial to, to Brescia's appointment was was the fact that she received uh, a, a secondary degree from West Virginia University, which would have given her the credentials uh, to sell herself as a successful CEO. Um, but when a local newspaper called after the announcement uh, that she was named to check those credentials to make sure that she actually had that degree, um, they, they quickly found that th this degree wasn't made of anything. Uh, the, the president of the university offered one response, uh, the registrar another, um, and after an investigation, it became clear that that degree was awarded without Manchin completing any of the necessary credits. Um, and the degree was ultimately rescinded, although she maintained uh, her position um, at Milan uh, and, and ultimately held on to that throughout a number of other uh, ensuing scandals. And let me, let me just add one extra Mansion element to this, and then let's, let's go into the discussion. A, you know, Mansion and Puskar were, were friends, and we, we now know from, from our reporting that, uh, that Mansion is the one who got Heather Bresch the job at Milan originally by asking for a favor uh, from Postcard. He was, and, and he was also uh, governor at the time that West Virginia University fraudulently claimed that she had a degree. And so he oversaw West Virginia University. Uh, there were, there were uh, you know, there were allegations at the time that Manchin had been involved with this, but that was never, that was never proven. But it was, it was shown that there was political interference from the very highest levels to push the idea that she did 
that she did have this uh, degree. And so the plant, the plant finally shut down, as you said, in, in 2020. The, the union and the workers had pushed uh, for, a lot, for a variety of different solutions. They said, what about Defense Production Act? You know, can't you, can't, isn't there some use for a, an effective plant, a pharmaceutical plant in the middle of a pandemic? There's nothing that can be done here. They also tried to find other pharmaceutical companies that would come in and, and buy this and, and, use, and use this plant so that the workers could put their expertise to work. That, that didn't happen, despite their, the relationship between you know, Bresch, Manchin, and all of the other uh, power structures. So what, what role did Manchin play in all of this? Well, I think ultimately at the end, after, you know, kind of safeguarding his daughter's entire career trajectory and initiating it, you know, Manchin ultimately took a back seat uh, from protecting the large, largest economic driver uh, in the region and in, in the place that that's his political foothold um, in, in northern West Virginia. You know, he, he ultimately wrote a letter for uh, special status for the plan at the 11th hour, just days before it, it was officially closed down. Um, and you know, did next to nothing to uh, you know support union workers. Um, uh, you know, oh, wait, daughter we, walked away we, with. We we lost you. Let's. Are you there? Yeah, pick pick it up at ultimately like. Yeah, I, I think it's ultimately striking that uh, despite this plant shutting down, uh, you know, hundreds of union workers losing uh, solid union jobs, his daughter ultimately walked away with 30 million and has subsequently dodged uh, a number of investigations into her role inflating, uh, you know, EpiPens and, and a product that, uh, you know, she profited off of immensely, ultimately at the cost of this facility. I think this is the biggest problem that so many of us have with politics in general and politicians is just this ability. You know, once they this is supposed to be a job for a public servant or they're supposed to work for us. The really the pay is is not enough for them to get wealthy off of, but they still end up getting very wealthy. And I know Manchin already was previously before getting into office. But the fact that they're able to use their position to help their family members and to and to enrich their family members or even their spouses uh, I mean, this is the biggest, you know, obviously the, the EpiPen scandal with it rising from what was it like $124 to 600 and something dollars over the course of just a couple of years is a giant scandal, especially for those people who genuinely need that. But on top of that is just this, this corruption. And I know it's not illegal. I get that. It's not illegal. But that's the, so that's the problem with it is like, okay, we can look into Mansion and then we find sure. out how much, how much uh, of the campaign contributions came from this company, I would imagine quite a bit. But sure, but I think, uh, sure, but I think the critical thing uh, to understand too, in respects to uh, you know Manchin's family, is that you know while while he's safeguarded the career of his daughter, the the union president of the Mylon plant was actually Joe Manchin's own cousin, who you know was permanently disabled on his boat uh, in the seventies, and who after reaching out over and over and over again for help. Uh, you know, was met with silence from from his own cousin on behalf of you know 1,400 union workers. So I think it's also important to remember that not all of Manchin's family members uh, are treated equally. Well, and, he could have maybe siphoned off a bit of that 30 million and said, "Here you go, cousin. Yeah. I'll give you a little something <laughs> on the side." 
Yeah, but didn't happen. And so uh, let, that brings us up to this what this to, this money that he got for West Virginia University. You know, just step stepping back, you would say, okay, good. Finally, there's you know this this plant is going to be uh, utilized thanks to thanks to Mansion and Shelley Moore Capito sending sending money there. But that also is kind of what was in the interests of the major pharmaceutical company Pfizer that ended up buying this plant because they didn't want a competitor, I would presume, to come in and be able to use that plant. So it's actually much better for the parent company that instead of having these 1,400 workers go back into the plant and continue to make generic drugs, which we need, it turns into a research facility for West Virginia University. Is, am, am I reading that right? Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, those jobs were ultimately outsourced and, and shipped overseas. And, you know, uh, more reporting I have out today shows that, uh, you know, Joe Manchin's wife has actually invested in biotech startups uh, at West Virginia, Virginia University. So, you know, this the West, West Virginia University has been a uh, limited inc economic incubator um, for uh, wealthy investors in the state who, who partner with startups. Um, but in terms of its impact in the community, I think it's difficult to understand how uh, anything that, you know, they're putting into that space. And let's be clear, they haven't uh, made clear what that space is going to be used for or whether it's been officially transferred. But it, it's hard to imagine what could replace, you know, a union factory uh, in terms of economic driver in this region. You know, the estimated impact of this loss is somewhere, you know, around 2.5 billion. So how that's going to be made up is an open question. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.